Hi, this is Amy Walters, a senior producer at The Take, bringing you another take. Each Saturday, we revisit a story from the past that's back in the news. Today, it's in Yemen, where the U.S. and U.K. hit what they describe as military targets in several cities there. The strikes were in retaliation for Houthi attacks on shipping vessels in the Red Sea. We covered that earlier this week. This episode we're playing for you today is from President Joe Biden's first days in office, when he made a very different decision. This story originally aired on February 17th, 2021. Any dates or other references are from that time. It was one of the last foreign policy decisions of the Trump administration. A foreign terrorist designation for unsaddled law, the official name of the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The designations are intended to hold Ansarallah accountable for terrorist acts, including cross-border attacks, threatening civilian populations, infrastructure, and commercial shipping. The Houthis have been fighting the internationally recognized government in Yemen since 2014. In that time, Yemen's humanitarian crisis has become the worst in the world. And the U.S. designation could have thrown that crisis into chaos. In a country of 30 million people, 80% depend on aid, whether it's food, medicine, or fuel. Any shortfall in aid could be dire. More than 80% of the population lives in areas controlled by Houthis. Many fear keeping the group on the terror list would make the crisis worse. The sanctions under the U.S. terrorism designations could strangle food deliveries just as the threat of major famine is rising. Now, the new administration under President Joe Biden has walked it back. From start to finish, the Houthis spent less than a month on the foreign terrorist organization list. But decisions made in those few weeks had a big impact on Yemen's conflict and its people. Decisions that could shift the trajectory of a years-long war. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with Abu Bakr al-Shamahi, a British Yemeni freelance journalist who writes for Al Jazeera. Most of his extended family is still in Yemen. And unfortunately, like most Yemeni families, I'd say, from the north of the country, my family is quite divided by the war as well. So you have some people who are on one side, some on the other side, and then people in the middle. It, it just becomes very hard to cross those divides. And then once they are set in stone and then people die and the country really gets worse and worse in terms of the war and it's just harder to get people on the same page again, unfortunately. So tell me about how this designation came into effect in the first place. What does a foreign terrorist organization designation do? It designates a foreign group as a terrorist organization, but the designation goes far beyond simply calling a group a terrorist group. It's illegal to provide resources to that group to aid it in any way. And that's something that is problematic for any group dealing with any group that's been designated as an FTO. An FTO, or Foreign Terrorist Organization. 
And that doesn't just go for U.S. companies. It applies to anyone making transactions in U.S. dollars, like aid organizations. So the Houthis, they officially go by the name Ansar Allah, more widely known amongst Yemenis as the Houthis, but they like to be known as Ansar Allah. The problem in Yemen is the Houthis de facto control a lot of the country and they control areas where a lot of the population live. So that means it automatically becomes very difficult for trade to occur, for aid organizations to get involved, all because people are very afraid of getting on the wrong side of the US Treasury. If you violate or happen to violate an FTO designation, then you are at risk of prosecution yourself. Aid workers like myself who are not armed, not parties to the conflict and do not take sides could be criminalized or prosecuted for simply delivering aid and saving lives. The FTO designation on Ansar Allah got a lot of pushback from international organizations. Among them was the Norwegian Refugee Council. Sultana Begum, who you just heard, is their advocacy manager based in the capital, Sana'a. She said aid workers feared they would have to pause their operations or stop them altogether. Ansar Allah are the de facto authority in northern Yemen, where 70% of the population live. We were concerned, would we be able to run our office, pay our staff, source our supplies and get to communities who are in dire need? We were also worried about getting life-saving food, fuel and medicines into Yemen, a country 80% dependent on imports. And Sultana said those imports were thrown into chaos by the FTO designation. Yemeni importers who bring in 90% of the country's food were also warning that they may have to shut down business. And our concern was that even with humanitarian exemptions for aid agencies, no amount of aid could fill the gap left by the commercial sector. And we're glad to say that finally the U.S. government decided to revoke the designations. This was a welcome sigh of relief for aid agencies and Yemeni civilians alike. So with the risk of worsening the world's worst humanitarian crisis, why impose this designation at all? To understand that, we've got to dive into the conflict in Yemen. A civil war meets proxy war along one of the Middle East's political fault lines. In the north, you've got the Houthis, a separatist group that has fought multiple wars with the government over the decades. Today's civil war began in 2014, when they took over the capital from the internationally recognized government. That government fled to the south, where they're still based. And the proxy part of the war is a conflict between Iran and a coalition led by Saudi Arabia, which borders Yemen. Iran backs the Houthis politically and diplomatically, but Saudi Arabia has long accused it of also providing military support. That's what drew in the United States. Here's former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. No reasonable person doubts precisely who conducted these strikes. These weapon systems had ranges that could not have come from the Houthis. Uh, it is crazy for anyone to assert that they did. I mean, it is literally nuts on its face to make an assertion that this was an attack by the Houthis. Uh, this was Iran, true and true. I think there were most likely a couple of different motivations for the U.S. government at the time to impose this designation. I don't think very many of those motivations actually had to do with 
ending the war on the ground. I think one of the motivations was to show that Iran was being targeted in some kind of way in the Middle East. And of course, the Houthis are considered, you know, one of Iran's allies in the region. You can interpret this as a parting shot from the Trump administration, from Mike Pompeo, to attempt, like I say, show the importance in their eyes of targeting Iran and show that they are allies to Saudi Arabia in the region and in their fight against the Houthis in Yemen. Ending the terrorist designation isn't the only major move by the U.S. since President Joe Biden took office. It is also ending military aid to Saudi Arabia for the war in Yemen. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. Do you see these moves as simply symbolic or could they actually impact the direction of this conflict? I think the the U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen, it was an important one, but it's important to also not exaggerate that involvement. The U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen was mainly to do with things like logistics, training and, and weapons supplies to the Saudis. But of course, a lot of countries supply arms to Saudi Arabia and its neighbors in the region. Now, when Joe Biden came out and said, that the U.S. would be ending all support for offensive operations in Yemen. What he was doing was, in my opinion, symbolic. The United States is saying that they want to put pressure on the Saudis to stop this war. And just because something's symbolic doesn't mean that it's not important. So you mentioned the Biden administration says it wants the war to end and they're ending support for offensive operations. But They've also said that they will continue to help Saudi Arabia defend itself. So is there a loophole here that we should be looking at? I think it's to be expected that the United States would always say that they will support Saudi Arabia in terms of Saudi Arabia's defense. So it was a way to moderate the U.S. stance and and show the Saudis that we are ending our support for the offensive operations, but we will partake in, in the defense of Saudi Arabia. And of course, The Houthis do fire missiles, projectiles at Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia sees itself as surrounded by various different enemy states or groups backed by Iran. So from the Saudi perspective, they would want to see some kind of defense or some kind of support from the United States. So at the same time that U.S. policy is shifting, there's also been an uptick in the fighting in Yemen's civil war. What's going on there? This is the problem, because whilst the United States is coming out and trying to make these moves to end the war in Yemen and to bring that moment closer where all sides can agree to a peace deal, the reality of what we're seeing on the ground is quite different. If anything, the Houthis have actually stepped up their operations. Yemeni soldiers fire at Houthi positions west of Marib. The Houthis are trying to seize the city, the internationally recognised government's last stronghold in the north. In the last two weeks, there uh, has been an, a, a huge increase in fighting on the ground in a province, a governorate called Merib, which is to the east of Sana'a, the capital. Merib is the stronghold of the Yemeni government. It's one of the few areas under the Yemeni government's control that is considered stable. This is a city that's expanded massively 
since this war started. It's really the only big city in the north of the country that they fully control. So symbolically, it's really important. Now for the Houthis, if they go and take Marib, they can then say, we control the north of Yemen. We are the representatives of the north of Yemen. And so they are getting now closer and closer to Marib city. And a lot of people are dying on the ground. And a lot of civilians who have fled to Marib, whether that's civilians who are now living in IDP camps surrounding Marib city, or civilians who've been able to, you know, go and rent or buy property in Marib itself, they're now really fearful that the war has actually come to them, even if they had fled that war a couple of years before. Because of these changes in U.S. policy, there is a lot of focus on the Saudi-led coalition's fight against the Houthis. But how much of that is actually fueling the conflict? If all the external actors in Yemen stopped operations tomorrow, is that the end of the civil war? The war in Yemen started before the Saudis got involved. Unfortunately, it will most likely continue after the Saudis leave. The Saudis intensified the conflict. They made it worse, you know, the airstrikes, the civilian deaths, the casualties. But to say that they were the reason for the division, it's just not true. I think if the US is successful in getting the Saudis to pull out of Yemen, in getting the government and the Houthis to a table somewhere in a foreign country, and, you know, they come up with a deal and they all sign it and everyone goes home. That will unfortunately not mean an end to the conflict because unless you find a solution that somehow manages to make all those different groups happy or some of the groups are weak enough that they have to accept whatever deal comes, then we will not see an end to the conflict. Currently, no side really feels it's weak enough. Every side thinks that it can still win. And the other thing to remember is that there's this impression that if the Saudis pull out, then the international community should just accept that the Houthis should be the government of Yemen. And if you speak to Yemenis, many Yemenis, of course not all, the Houthis have their supporters, but many Yemenis will tell you that they, they don't want that, that, that this is not a future that they can accept. The Houthis have killed a lot of people in Yemen. The prisons are full. And so I think many Yemenis are very angry at that suggestion because they see it as ignoring the reality of life for Yemenis and what it will be after this conflict supposedly ends. You know, the rest of the world can wash its hands of Yemen, but Yemenis will have to continue living under the, the climate that will have been created. And that's The Take. You can find more of Abu Bakr's reporting on aljazeera.com. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Amy Walters, Nagin Oliay, Priyanka Tilbe, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilad. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer of The Take. We'll be back on Friday 